Hey, it's Ryan with uh, Beers TV and uh, Ask Beers TV. We're going to try something new today. Uh, we're not going to give away 20 grand tank, but uh, I want to congratulate Brett. Uh, gave, people gave him a lot of hard time for not being excited enough, but I think we caught him off guard. And uh, I'm pretty excited to see his tank. He says he's going to build a thread over on uh, Reef to Reef, so that'll be pretty exciting. But uh, today what we're going to do is something a little different. We've been uh, talking about and previewing uh, you know, the video, the Friday video before it comes out, but I'm sure a lot of people watched it on Friday, and today we're just going to, like, answer some questions. I got a few prepared that I came from, or not prepared, but uh, I wrote down from uh, the comments on the YouTube video, but I'd really prefer to just go ahead and ask them for you guys, and just a couple of, you know, house clean things, man. I just <laughs> want to welcome everybody from the hashtag uh, TV over on uh, Facebook, there's uh, about three, 1,300 people that joined last week, and they're just overwhelming us with questions. So it's super fun to see what everybody's talking about. And uh, Randy and myself are answering the questions. We're hiring somebody here to answer questions there. But actually, even cooler is there's a like-minded community there of people that share kind of uh, the BRS core values of reefing, I should say. And, uh, you know, answering other people's questions there with really solid answers, uh, most often beating us to the punch and sharing accurate, helpful stuff. So, you know, join there if you like sharing with people, helping other people, or join because you got questions. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, I think we'll just roll right into it. So we were talking about, you know, mechanical filtration on Friday. You know, we fudged mechanical a little bit with carbon and whatnot, but protein skimmers and sediment filters. And uh, I guess I'll just roll in and answer a couple of questions here. <clears throat> Hopefully I can get one pretty soon. Uh, what's the best nutrient export for a sumpless system? All right, well, I'm going to tell you, if it's a sumpless system like an all-in-one, I mean, I guess I don't know if that's totally technically sumpless, but most sumpless systems like uh, don't really have uh, or often are pretty small, it's a water change. So, I mean, if I got like a 40-gallon tank, two buckets of water is probably the easiest way for me to access or take water out. But like say I had a 90 gallon tank, the best way might be even like a hang on refugium with a really awesome light, but you know, that might be kind of expensive for, you know, the fact that it's a sumpless system. So, you know, probably carbon dosing with a decent hang on skimmer might be. Uh, let's see here. Okay, with the hybrid method and the recent talks on skimmer size, I'm trying to determine whether to use the uh, 150 SSS Classic, the 110 INT, or no skimmer on my 180. I'll be running a Fuge with Kato. So, you know, on a 180. So, I will say that, you know, those are pretty small skimmers for a 180, but it might not be, it'll probably run all the time in produce. It probably just won't be the most efficient or effective uh, system out there. But I, if I only had uh, like a couple hundred bucks to spend, I might buy some Kato and a light because it's been my experience that some Kato and a light removes all of the nutrients, like uh, near 100% efficiency. I walk by, grab some out once in a while, I throw it in the trash when I'm done. There's no clean out the skimmer cup, there's no monitoring it, there's no tuning it. I, mean, I like the skimmer, I like the fact that it uh, does gas exchange for me, but if I could only pick one or the other, you know, in many cases, I might personally pick uh, the refugium. So, go with that. Uh, <clears throat> Let's see here. 
Will a 30 parts per million from an RO system be too high for a mixed reef tank? Uh, that's a good question, man, because, you know, 30 parts per million actually sounds pretty clear. I mean, I'm just going to be surprised at an RO system. That's, it should be performing probably better now unless you've got really dirty water. You know, the thing about it is you really just don't even know what's in our water. So, like, here, our water in Minneapolis is 100 TDS. Uh, which is like pretty clean, most people would say, and uh, comes out of a river, except for 10 parts per million of that is silica. So like one-tenth of what's in there is silica. I got three and a half parts per million uh, chloramines, almost one part per million of it is ammonia. So, you know, it's really not about the fact that it's 30. It's about what's in that 30 that really matters. So for me, I mean... Again, I think you should look at your RO system and wonder why it's putting out 30, because it should do better than that. But uh, outside of that, I'd personally use DI resin and clean it up. You know, the water's just never going to be better than what you start with. And I guess in my back of my mind, any time I ever had something die, I'd be wondering whether or not, you know, was it whatever's in my water that I'd prefer to not keep putting in there with top-off water or water changes. Uh, what else is here? What's more important when using metal halides, reflectors or ballast? Well, I mean, it's not related today, but why not? So to me, it's definitely the reflector. I mean, there's ballast out there that will produce uh, like a little bit more power, a little bit more efficiently. Some of them actually, you know, drive bulbs better than other ones, and they'll actually change the color to some degree. But the reflector is really how you're going to distribute light. And if you think about the, you know, halide, a lot of people think about it as, you know, like a really strong point of light, like a LED or something. You know, and it does have a little teeny bulb in there that's super duper bright. But in reality, only half of that light is actually going down in the water. In reality, it's probably even like a third because this part's going in the water. The wider angle's just bouncing out off the surface of the water. It's the other half that is being shot upwards into the reflector that's being shot back down into the tank. And that's why, actually, you know, a big, huge reflector for a metal halide is considered a large, kind of diffused light source, you know, for most of us, if you really think about it. It's kind of like a hybrid of source because there is a strong point of light that's diffused with a really large reflector that's a secondary source of light. And so for me, probably the most important in a halide installation is that and actually one of the things that we've been talking about here is you know with uh, the E170 I've been talking about what's the cheapest possible way to light that tank properly a couple of the things that we've been debating is you know well it could be a uh, bank of T5s I mean that is definitely one of the cheapest ways to do it uh, another one would be, you know, use the light that came with it, which is that Hydra 26, and then mix it with uh, some T5s with that uh, aquatic life fixture. But actually, the cheapest possible way to do this, what we found, was a metal halide reflector bulb and a uh, ballast. You know, I'm not really sure if you're going to overheat the water in this case, but, you know, with a fan or whatnot, you might be able to get around that, uh, especially if you're not running T5s with it. But actually, if the only thing you're caring about is results, keeping the corals healthy, uh, a metal halide fixture might actually be the best. In fact, one of the tanks here I thought visually looked the best of any tanks that I've ever seen put up here was RST's tank, which had the uh, LED hybrid from ReefBright. So it was a small little halide with uh, LEDs on the side. It's not super, super cheap. But mixed with the radion bulb, 
I think it was the best looking coloration I've probably seen uh, in any of the lighting installations I've seen here. All right. So does the head pressure for a return pump include a vertical or horizontal distance? I mean, I wonder how that's applied. Uh, I mean, you should absolutely uh, uh, account for that when you're doing the, the turnover uh, on your tank. Uh, definitely want to figure out when you're trying to do, especially if you're going to be on the low end, like I'm calculating for 3x, I should actually probably measure it, uh, you know, put a bucket underneath the overflow or something and just see how much water it's actually putting out. But uh, you should definitely account for that. I'm going to try to stick here to a couple questions from last week's episode, though. Uh, let's see here. Oh, there's a good one, actually, Daniel, because I have this on my sheet here from uh, Mike B. as well. The, f the feed every hour on the hour WWC method seems insane. I guess they did the math, and uh, you're covering up there, Dave. Uh, and benefits outweigh the cost. Are you planning to use this technique for the hybrid system? Well, you know, a big thing, and this is going to be kind of coming up in this week's episode, is it is insane to feed uh, on the hour by the hour. It goes the opposite of what you've been told, probably. Uh, but they have so much coral biomass in this tank that they're just trying to make sure that it has enough uh, nutrition for the corals. Not just phosphate and nitrate, but hopefully amino acids and proteins. And they're blending this up in a food processor, so it's really hitting like all kinds of different sizes. I think they're mixing in particulate foods and whatnot with it. And it's probably not even realistic to actually be able to feed on the hour by the hour for an average person. But that doesn't mean that I can't feed it in the morning and that I can't feed it at night and put an auto feeder you know, uh, on the tank during the day. Like You can feed pellets with an auto feeder. You can feed uh, things like reef chili or whatnot with an auto feeder. So it's not that you couldn't be able to do this uh, at home. It's just that you wouldn't be able to do it the exact same way. It's probably going to be like a, you know, way, way, way more nutrients than the average person would need. So I wouldn't recommend it. But... What I would say is, you know, the way that they're managing the nitrate and phosphate buildup in that tank is just by monitoring how much goes in. So if you're putting a bunch of food in the tank and you got your filtration working as best as it's good, or it can, you know, you got your skimmer running the best it's ever going to possibly run, you're changing out your filter socks like you're going to, you know, whether or not that's the best, it's the most realistic change out that you're ever going to do. You know, if everything's going the way you're going to do it, the water changes are the same, and you're feeding the amount of food you do, and nitrate and phosphate are still going up, well, stop feeding so much. It's done. Like, that's the end of the equation there. I mean, go add more filtration if you want, but really, you're probably adding too much food for this tank, so just slow it down. But in this case, I mean, they're adding that much food, and they're still just maintaining the nitrate and phosphate levels that they'd like, so, you know, it working for them. The big part of this is the differentiation, though, between a brand new tank, like that tank in that first two years and a tank uh, two years after. Two years, in the first few, two years, like, there's all kinds of things fighting for, you know, what's going to populate that rock and the ecosystem in there. And it could be cyano, could be dinos, could be coralline algae, it could be corals, could be a microfauna, it could be all different things. But in the beginning, like, anything could happen. So... You know, really, it's more work to maintain that tank. We probably want to lay, maintain lower nutrients in the beginning. And then after that, you know, two years down the road or even a year, depending on how good you are at this, you know, you can, like, start to let it slide a little bit. And probably the amount of nitrate in the tank really doesn't even matter as much as it did back then. 
phosphate, most of us are still going to want to leave it down pretty far just to make sure that we're getting coral growth. And, you know, WWC teams feels really strongly that high phosphate ruins the coloration of the corals. So, you know, I would really think about that. Let me see if I can find another one here. Uh, Valerie said here, the no release date on the Trident. I, I agree. Those guys are working super hard on that. You know, for me, that's going to be the coolest thing that's probably you know, really ever entered our industry. And I know there's other ones out there currently, but I'm waiting for one that I can really rely on, specifically one that, you know, goes to uh, apps and technology that I already use. But if you don't get it out soon, I might gravitate and try another one. But, you know, like for them, and I think it's really cool, you know, for me, when I'm doing all the tests here on all of the, you know, experiments we do, one of the things that I see uh, almost immediately with all of the tests is, the calcium and alkalinity consumption correlates with coral growth like right away. Meaning if I turn the lights up and it starts producing more energy, I start seeing immediately more calcium and alkalinity uptake. So if you can see that stuff like by the hour, I can change my lights 5% and see 5% uptake of calcium and alkalinity increase, bam, and I knew I did the right thing. If I increase it 10% uh, my lighting or some other thing, and then all of a sudden the calcium and alkalinity starts dropping, I know that I actually are inhibiting the uh, uh, photosynthetic process and slowing down growth. So once that trident comes out, I think that you're going to see like a tune in your tank specifically with alkalinity that will really tell you in real time and like day by day, hour by hour, what I'm doing is working or it isn't. Uh, and so I'm pretty excited about that. But I'm not really sure when they're going to come out with it. Let's see here. Uh, okay, uh, James here. When we go to feed mode, would turning off the carbon reactor during the feed cycle or one hour later be a good practice? You know, I think that's a pretty good question. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially if I'm feeding, like, liquid products, uh, like amino acids and all those kinds of things into the tank. Uh, turning off your carbon would be a good way to not waste those expensive products. You know, so that's why it's nice to have feed modes on your controllers and stuff because it can tell you to do all kinds of different things. It can turn off my skimmer for an hour. It can turn off my uh, uh, feeders or it can turn off uh, my carbon. It can turn off really all kinds of things, my return pump, the flow in the tank or whatnot, just to allow the stuff to cycle around. I would say that, you know, carbon tends to be way less efficient after a couple of days. So, like, I personally don't get super wrapped up in it and... I may be wasting some of the nutrients in the first couple days or whatnot, but like, uh, I mean, if I was going to run ideally and I didn't want to waste my money uh, by having the carbon pull out good things, I mean, I do that same thing with the skimmer too, I guess. You know, just make sure that, you know, all the stuff is turned off for an hour or two. And something like a skimmer, it doesn't need to run all day. I mean, you could turn it off for six hours if you wanted to, uh, just to make sure that all that stuff is staying in the water. You know, you could turn it off during the day when the, you know, or at night, either one, when you think the coral is most likely to capture some of that stuff. Ryan, can you stock the Pax Bellum? Man, I, I've been begging those guys over at Unique Corals to let me uh, sell that thing. And the fact is, is they just don't build them fast enough for the kind of volume that you guys would buy them if we started promoting them. But, like, I would absolutely love to sell that thing. Uh, in fact, I've told them that I might, like, not sell the Skims one if you let me sell that one because it's a really, really nice piece of equipment. And it's the one that I would use if I was going to use a uh, uh, LG reactor. I will say that 
I mean, I'm a gearhead, so I love gear. But in this specific case, if I could, I'd still rather have just to have a fuge. And I could walk by and grab some out and throw it in the trash. I never think about it. In fact, I very rarely even do that. I just let it build up because it just, in our case, it stays healthy top to bottom. Uh, I don't really want to have to unassemble a uh, reactor, pull it apart, pull it out from a sump, and clean it out. And I, I, I personally don't want to do that, even though I love gear. So it's great for a small, compact thing. And uh, you know, I'll bug Joe even more. Maybe we'll tag him in this or something, uh, and uh, remind him that he should uh, help us out with selling the Pax Bellum. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> let's see here. All right, uh, how about this one? Is zeobit enough to be used in a media bag as long as you shake it often? Uh, is zeobit enough using a media bag? Uh, so I imagine you're talking about using the zeobit rocks in a media bag and then just shaking it often. And I don't know why that wouldn't work, to be honest. You know, it's part of the zeobit program. You know, part of the zeobit program, though, is like you follow that thing like to the T, to the best of your ability, then you'll be able to reproduce the results that you see in there. So strain from it, just because there's a little bit of a mystery in there, is always, you know, not the best thing in the world. So, you know, if I, you know, could only afford it, or I didn't have the room for it, or whatnot, and I wanted to run zeobit, could I use a bag of those rocks? I'd have to put it in a high flow area, like. Maybe I could put it in you know, something like one of those cylinders that goes in your filter sock area. I haven't done this, so don't quote me on it for sure. But put it in an area like that where water is going to actually flow through it and manually just kind of shake it a couple times. Or you know, put it around the baffles of uh, the sump and just kind of shake it up uh, you know, once a day manually with my hand. I mean, I, I don't see why that wouldn't work, to be honest. So, you know, absolutely give it a shot. All right. Uh, retro reefs, 100 gallon standard versus a 750 XXL for an SPS reef. You know, uh, I mean, kind of depends on the money you got, really, uh, because the XXL, you know, comes with a nice stand. It's tall, comes all together. You know, you don't really have to shop for a lot of plumbing stuff. It's going to be cheaper in that manner. But really, it looks nice. So you know, this is going to go in your living room. You know, and you know, if you got a uh, you know five dollar couch that you got at a garage sale, like I don't know, man, I would guess I'd get the uh, you know whatever tank fit that decor. But you know, if you spend a lot of time making your living room look nice, man, this is a piece of furniture that's going to be in there. And uh, I don't know, I want it to look nice. A rimless look is really sharp and. You know, the one thing I will say is I personally hate having the overflow in the tank kind of prevent some, you know, flow. Uh, uh, and you'll see this in the flow episode, actually. But it, you know, prevents some flow in the back of the tank by having the overflow jut out. But I asked the team here this the other day, you know, on our, our customer service meeting, you know, what they would prefer. And almost all of them would prefer to have the overflow in the tank so they can butt the tank up against the wall you know, and have it look nice and clean that way without exposed plumbing and have it go through the bottom. You know, ideally, all of them actually said they would prefer just to cover that area up, kind of like the Red Sea Maxes do, uh, where it's a coast-to-coast -coast overflow and then there is like, you know, five inches that covers up all the plumbing and goes to the wall and it has both, uh, you know, effects. I don't have that overflow in the tank. But in general, I think that 
you know, with a 180, you have options, just a standard one, you have options to go out and buy your own type of like Ghost or uh, Synergy Reef Overflow, or you, know, you can really do whatever you want. Drilling it is super easy. The first, especially in a thick tank like that, first time you do it, you know, you'll say, man, this was like butter, man. I never, never, I wouldn't be afraid of it at all, personally. And you can really customize it, but I gotta say, I think a lot of people just want a nice, sharp looking tank. They get rid of that black trim and, you know, have the stand look nice, have it be tall so I can get in there. The sump, actually, uh, I personally really like on the XXL 750 just because it's so big and open. There's nice little trays in there that can make a refugium and compartmentalize it off if I want to. Uh, I was actually able to even fit the roller mat in the area where the pipes go down. So, you know, it costs a little bit more money, but, you know, it's going to look sharp in your home. And to me, if the tank itself looks like crap, you know, you're probably not going to make the inside look it's always going to distract from what's inside of it. All right. Uh, a, okay, would you recommend having a protein skimmer on a 10-gallon nano? Absolutely not. Like, never in a million years would I ever put a protein skimmer on a 10-gallon nano. And this is just my own personal opinion. But on a 10-gallon nano, a 20% uh, water change is uh, two gallons. Uh, I mean, I, I know out front here, Chad has a 37-gallon, uh, uh, the, the 170E-series, uh, and literally, man, he just drained the thing every week and, you know, fill it back up you know, with the uh, new water. Like, I would say 80% shot water change once a week. He has tons of fish. He dumps food in there. But it's so easy, man, because the thing's so small. So in 10 gallons, I... To, I got noise, I got cost, I got room, I got space. There's just zero chance. Even things like the 20-gallon Nouveau, man, and not only that, but those tiny skimmers, like, never work. So, I mean, they work a little bit, you know, so, I mean, if you're really, really adamant about it, or if you're going to have tons and tons of fish in a small area, which you shouldn't have anyway, uh, and you need the gas exchange, I guess, but I can't think of a scenario where I would run one like that, so... Uh, okay, Ryan, are you going to ever bring back that kit for growing frags to sell? You know, we used to have that uh, tray that you could uh, buy, like a hydroponics tray. Uh, you know what I found on that was it worked good for a lot of things, and then on other things it, it just wasn't deep enough for a lot of different corals. It's cool, though, like you want to grow zoanthids or something in there, and you don't only really need six inches of water. Uh, and it's you know easy to go in your garage and whatnot, but it also like almost everyone in these days now has a hydroponic store in their uh, city, and sip, shipping those giant trays was just really expensive, and we had to build it into the price you know to get it out the door here you know safely. And uh, I think you're better off just buying it in person. You just go buy a hydroponics tray. So. so Ryan, what do you think you will achieve with the coloration the WWC has with just radions? Or do you see your team adding T5s in at a later time? So we're deviating again a little bit from, uh, you know, last week's topic, but I don't care. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, man. You know, to be honest, you know, we're going to have just radions on there. It isn't the same. You know, the coloration on the, uh, uh, the 293 they have there is – 
if you only saw it, you would say, awesome, and high-five everybody in the room that created And then if you look to your right and you see the 500, you say, oh, that's even awesomer. Oh, what's happening here? And I don't think that's actually related to the radions per se. I think that's mostly related to the fact that it's way, way, way lower flow in that tank. Uh, and it just isn't optimized, you know, for SPS. It's, again, what you're doing is creating that universe where I'm trying to mix corals in here that grow at 40 feet of depth with corals that grow at four. You know, we're just trying to find that middle ground where things don't die. You know, like uh, simulate 20 feet, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, and then try to, you know, manage that somehow in three feet of water. You know, so, like, I don't think that's a coloration there, but I guess we're going to see, you know, for sure. I've seen a lot of really good coloration from uh, radions in the past, specifically if you're going to, you know, I, actually I think the LEDs themselves, you know, not just in the fact that the coral looks good, but they represent color, the, just the spectrums that they pick, you know, tend to pop coral out uh, pretty well. So, you know, definitely there are tanks have T5s. You know, when I talked about it with, with Josh, you know, really it wasn't about T5s or LEDs or, you know, it's just, you know, really light and different spectrums, especially when you start putting it under those diffusers. So it wasn't so much that. It was about how do we get the spread that we want? You know, how do we get the coverage that we want? And for, you know, WWC, it, it would just get kind of ridiculous. For a tank like the 900, is four feet front to back. Like, I mean, the amount of radions on this thing would be, you know, absolutely ridiculous. So why not just add in a couple of pretty cheap T5s to, you know, compensate? It just makes more sense economically. And in fact, you know, on the XXL 750, this is really kind of a dreamish tank. You know, we've got other tanks that we're going to show you how to do it in other ways, but you know, we're spending a fortune on these lights. You know, there are, what, 10 XR15s on the top of this tank? So, you know, this four grand lights are up there. I, I haven't tuned them yet, but I imagine they're going to be turned to, man, I don't even know. If it goes past 50%, I guess I'd be shocked. But, you know, they're going to be turned down quite a bit to get into that 150 to 350 range as in much of the tank as possible. You know, really shooting again for that 250, maybe 100 either way. And, you know, really, I don't think we're going to see a lack of anything from the T5s. I guess we'll see. But it sure looks sharp. And that was the other point, like, you know, when we decided to, what we're going to go with. I'm just not a big fan of hoods in most cases. You know, this one looks really sharp, but it's suspended, you know. So you got to find a way to hang this super heavy thing, man, from the ceiling. It takes three of us. So somebody has to hold one side of each side, and then you have to get somebody in the middle to move it around. And, I mean, I got steel bars in the ceiling to hang up the whole thing from our drop ceiling here in the office. You know, at work, man, I just... I'm just not a big fan of those things. So, you know, we would have probably used the aquatic life thing, but we'd have a lot of cords and, and whatnot from that. And I'm just looking for something that's going to look super sharp in our lobby as you come in. So, you know, I was willing to spend the money to get the desired look uh, and go LED only. But also, I mean, there's a message in here, like that if you're going wall-to-wall -wall SPS, you need to really think about coverage, shadows, and evenness of the light. If you just throw a couple XR30s on there, you're going to be super happy as long as you've got a mixed tank and you're thinking about where the corals are going to go. But if I want wall-to-wall, -wall, SPS, top-to-bottom, in every corner and nick of this tank, and I just want it to be a showstopper, well, i got to think showstopper mentality to try to achieve that. So 
Uh, I definitely think we could have done it with, you know, a row of XR15s, and I think you could have put in uh, just some T5s in the side. In fact, one of my favorite solutions, what I think would be even cheaper, you know, would be just a whole ton, maybe probably eight or probably ten uh, AI primes. Now, for me, I really like the diffused look. You, you couldn't get me to use a non-diffused uh, LED or an LEDs uh, like the Kessel where all of the LEDs come under a single lens and they're blended really well. To me, I mean, when you look at it, it really, I take the spectrometer and I'm underneath the glass shooting what the spectrum looks like. Without the diffusing, it's the Wild West. You know, you hit it one time or not, and the spectrum is just all over the place. And green and red and blue are shooting all over the place. And, you know, you could say maybe it doesn't matter, but, like, if you're going to say that spectrum doesn't matter, well, just throw the whole thing out, man. It's like just nothing matters then, I guess. You know, I just, I, I just can't imagine that argument that, you know, having the Wild West, the spectrum, shooting it all over the place. If you can visually see it with your eye, with red and green and blue shooting all over the place, uh, it's definitely the coral noticing it. So that's a big deal for me. All right. Is there a roller mat on the hybrid tank? Is there a roller pad that would work in an all-in-one tank? So we did put the roller mat uh, on the uh, hybrid tank, and uh, you saw that last week. It's the new compact version. Uh, they, you know, saw the opportunity here. You know, help spread the word about why this is really nice to not have to go down there and change them out all the time. And they built one that works in a small environment. So you can just set it down basically anywhere. If you want to cut out your filter sock thing, but you might not even have to do that. You can even hang it on the side of the sump. It's got U.S. fittings on it, both barb as well as a threaded MPT on it. So, I mean, there's, there's no universe where I could use one of those, and uh, I wouldn't. It, especially if I'm not running a fuge or anything. You know, if I'm going to use a filter sock or pad material of any kind, there's no universe where I wouldn't. As far as, far as in all-in-one, I mean, I don't think you're ever going to really see that. You know, it's just it's going to be so small. I mean, by ever, I just don't see it going to be in the near future. It would have to be so small, and it would be, it'd have to be by a manufacturer that, you know, makes it specific to their tank. Like even the ones from uh, Clear that uh, CoralView distributes now, you know, it fits in the filter sock, but like it doesn't really fit in the, in the uh, trigger ones because their socks are a little bit oval. It doesn't fit in the Red Sea ones because they're a little small. You know, it fits in their ice cap ones. I, I think it might fit in the uh, skims sumps. I'm not totally sure. You know, it does come with its own contraption that you can kind of put it anywhere, just like the roller mat version. But it's really hard to make something totally universal. And so I, I just don't think you're going to see it in all-in-one. You know, if you happen to have an all-in-one, like the Red Seas, that have the ports in the bottom you can put in a sump, you know, that would work, of course. All right. All right. Best nitrate test kit. Yeah, I absolutely have one. So if you're going to use a, if you're going to measure nitrate, which... Man, I think you should do once a month. You should have an idea of where, you know, the pollution in your tank is going. Am I feeding too much? Am I feeding too little? And if it's only for that, I would use the NIOS one for sure. And it's only for me as because it's like way, it's probably half the time to perform the test. And for me, it's the easiest one to read. So, like, for me, if I don't know which color it is, it's garbage. I just, like, how do I, how can I rely on it? 
And for me, I just have a hard time reading those things properly. The NIOS one for me is the easiest of the bunch to read. However, you know, it's really only accurate to me down to like the couple parts per million, which I think for most people is probably adequate. You know, most people are not gonna actually need to get down below a couple parts per million nitrate. And if you do, the Red Sea is the one is the best. So the Red Sea one, I think the methodology, what they, how they run the chemistry for the test is better. Uh, and it allows them to get down to like a quarter part per million and comes with a color wheel. And ultimately, if you're gonna go ultra low nutrients, I don't think there's a better you know, hobby grade test kit out there. In fact, we used, I mean, I, I don't even wanna go into frustration on this, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different calibrations and settings for the DR3900. This is a couple thousand dollar machine to read nitrate. And working with the people at Hawk over all of their different formulations, and ultimately what we found to be the best for seawater is use the Red Sea and then calibrate the uh, Hawk DR39 with a custom program to read the Red Sea at you know, several different points and create a curve. And then we created you know, uh, uh, standards you know, to make sure that it you know, hit those things and re-measured them. We also measured them against uh, you know, other things with actual tank water. And it was like spot on, you know, as far as nitrate goes, because nitrate in seawater is kind of difficult. But definitely NIOS, man, the easiest. And if you're anywhere between two and wherever, good enough. And uh, Red Sea, the best accuracy in the lower end of the range for me. All right. Do uh, mats, socks, rollers, etc., have an effect on the population of pods? Well, I mean... If you look inside the thing when you pull it out, I mean, it's more or less a massacre. Uh, there's tons and tons of amphipods in these things often. If you're changing them out every three days, probably not. But, like, you know, the little microscopic versions of these things are making their way through there. They're populating the sump. They're all over the tank. Man, I just don't believe for a moment that they're making a major dent in the pod population in the tank. I mean, I'm just saying that from experience and, you know, guessing. And not like I've counted the pods in the tank. But I would not let pods prevent me from using a filter sock, filter pad, or anything else like that in the tank. All right. Okay, hold on here. Carl. Ryan, I still believe the benefits of real live rocks farmed can't be replicated with dry rock. I feel the rewards far away the risk to creating a more stable and mature environment. I mean, Carl's not wrong. Uh, there is absolutely value in getting uh, rock out of the ocean. Just know what you're getting. And, you know, in the past, it was almost, if it was three bucks or four bucks a pound, it was boat rock. It had been sitting in some newspaper for two months. It you know, traveled from Fiji to L.A. on a boat, sat at harbor on both ends for weeks, and then it sat in a storage facility. And so, like, it's live. You know, it's wet, kept that uh, uh, bacteria and the coralline algae alive. With it. I mean, they literally scrubbed off everything else to make sure it doesn't rot. You know, and then there's things, uh, but even then, I, I still agree. You know, there's a, like a biofilm that's on this rock. There is, it's just going to cycle faster. It's probably going to have less uh, issues with uh, algae and whatnot, you know, in this initial stage. It's darker, so I, I just feel like light rock tends to grow algae a little bit more. Uh, 
But, man, Fiji's done. They're not going to sell rock ever again. Like, it's possible. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just don't see that coming. You know, I, I just don't see as a viable option. There's some stuff that, you know, was coming out of Indonesia. I just don't think that's going to happen again. Like, I think live rock, as you know it, you know, is kind of over. So it's kind of a mute point. There's places like TB Aquatics, you know, not TB Aquatics, T, uh, TB Tampa Bay Saltwater Aquatics that sells, you know, uh, rock that they drop in the ocean, let it sit out there for a year, and then they sell it to you. It comes in bags of water. It's covered in all kinds of corals and stuff. But, like, I mean, I, I shared this earlier. I, it was one of the coolest tanks that I've ever set up. You know, it was my very first one. I call it like an instant tank. But, man, there were, you know, parasitic isopods in there. There were all kinds of gorilla cabs, mantis shrimp everywhere. You know, like, it was awesome because I don't got, like, you know, $10,000 in corals in this tank. And it just, like, was a, you know, really, really cool experience. I, mean, I wouldn't use it personally now just because it's the extreme end. You ship in water, you're going to have everything is going to make it, you know. So... I think the end result is you're going to see people taking uh, dry rock and, you know, place, probably places in, you know, like Florida or whatnot, and, you know, culturing it to get, you know, bacteria and whatnot and coralline algae on it. You know, for anybody that says dry rock, like, doesn't produce the same results, uh, I just can't ever – there's no – there's like uh, things that I would just say are just completely untrue, and this is one of them, because every single tank in this whole place is started with dry rock, and this one is started with cement, you know, the, the Walt Smith, it's not cement, uh, but artificial rock, I think it's pumice or something. You know, like, so every single tank that you've ever seen in any of our episodes just started with dry rock, there's just tens of thousands man if not more you know of tanks out there using dry rock to start with it's i think probably nine out of ten tanks now are probably starting with dry rock so this is not true is it harder with dry rock for sure you know there's no question that you are avoiding a cost and b costing like the per pound the shipping the water weight all that kind of stuff and you're not having any of those pests, and like even with the dry rock, sometimes I even bleach it. I just I just don't want anything alive on this personally. And you're gonna have to soak it for a little bit, or run in a tank and just be careful in the beginning to again, you know, prevent some of the difficulties that are in the beginning. So I guess you're trading off many things uh, for a little bit more difficult start of the tank. All right. Uh, what else do we got in here? <clears throat> Ah, okay. Ryan, how do you feel about ion exchange resins for filtration in place of carbon such as pyrogen? You know, I got to tell you, I don't know what pyrogen is uh, or, you know, chemipure is a, uh, you know, pretty popular one too that has resin in there. Uh, you know, I got to say I got sucked in by some of the experts on, on Reef Central that basically say there's almost no resin that isn't going to be instantly depleted in a tank environment. I mean, I don't know if that's totally true or not. I haven't encountered any resins that, you know, you know, would, you know, be super efficient in that environment. It doesn't mean it exists. It doesn't mean those things don't work. I just don't use them and I don't have a need to because the carbon I know works and is so efficient uh, and easy to use. But like, 
you know, ion exchange resin in general, you know, I think in freshwater, like if I mix some of that kind of stuff with uh, carbon or whatnot, you know, freshwater is fairly clean. But in a saltwater environment, you know, it would be definitely a challenge. Now, again, like if somebody told me what pure gen was, I'd go research it and I may have a different opinion. Uh, but I've never actually looked into what that exactly is. Uh, Okay, hold on a second here. So, James, Ryan, can you use a refillable DI cartridge in chamber two filled with carbon blend instead of the one-time use carbon block? I mean, you get that question a lot. And no, like, uh, <laughs> you could, you could use it in there. The problem is, is you'd get channeling. So if I fill up a, a carbon block, you know, a, or, a car, or a, block, a refillable cartridge with carbon, you know, it's going to, I don't even know if it's going to be cheaper, but it might be cheaper to do that if you bought it in bulk. But the water is going to channel around all the little, those little particles, and so the carbon block. What happens is it is powdered carbon, and then it's extruded with a binder into that cylinder. And so, you know, the sheer amount of volume of, uh, uh, or not volume, but of sheer amount of. Uh, surface area that's on that carbon block and as water has to be passed through it is going to last so much longer than you know filling it up and you know that kind of hits on the catalytic carbon that people used to use for chloramines and so you know a while back that was kind of like the you know main way of dealing with chloramines was you know fill up a cartridge full of catalytic activated carbon and I can tell you right now that I've tried, you know, not only the ones that are in the water industry, but just out of curiosity, like the stuff that's being sold in the aquarium industry. And in relation to today's, you know, advancements in carbon block technology and, uh, uh, you know, being designed specifically for, you know, things like chloramines, the catalytic carbon, if you're still selling that or using it, it's like, you know, a decade behind the times, uh, and maybe not quite a decade, but you know, it's it's because you haven't looked into it or don't care. Uh, it is the carbon block will outperform it by ten, maybe twenty x, both in performance immediately as all as well as longevity. So it's again, it's really about the ability to get the water to have to flow through it rather than channeling around all of the little pellets, and you know, if you were going to do it, I, I think they still use catalytic activated carbon in larger solutions. So, like, you know, if you're going to fill up a big fiberglass drum or something with, you know, 50 pounds of it, I mean, that would work really well and probably the most cost efficient. But in a tiny little 10 inch cartridge, it's just not a good option. <clears throat> Ryan, can you change or can you explain the anion versus non-anion, the difference in your DI resin? Well, I mean, there's like 30-minute videos on this, so I'll try this the best I can. But uh, you know, there's two resins in there. There's one of them that's positively charged, one that's negatively, uh, and uh, it removes each one removes a different type. And the reason that you change them inside of a mixed bed cartridge is you know you got both of those resins in there one of them releases hydrogen one releases uh, h or uh, hydroxide in exchange for the contaminants in your water 
So hydroxide and hydrogen combine to create H2O or water. And so one of the beauties of using a mixed bed like that is, you know, the net result is just creation of more pure water. So uh, the reason that we separate it out, however, is because in a mixed bed, you know, for it to work properly, and especially for the color change to work properly, you know, they have to have a, like a 50-50 or 60-40 mix of these two even though the cation is going to last a lot longer than the anion resin. And so what happens is it looks depleted, like you depleted the whole thing, but there might be two-thirds left life of the you know, positively charged uh, resin. So you know, that's why we split them out in the pro series, is so that I can use all of the anion resin, change that out as needed, all of the cation resin, change that out as needed. And the other benefit of it is that it changes the pH drastically. In a mixed bed, it will have a neutral pH. It'll just be seven. Uh, in a uh, after it's going through the anion resin, the pH you know drops all the way to like three, and in the cation resin, it goes all the way up to like ten or eleven or something like that. And so I think maybe even higher. But it, like it, the extremes changes the forms of the contaminants uh, into something that can be removed. So ammonia is a really good one. I believe at high pHs that it's an ammonia gas and like has no charge and also goes right through things like your RO membrane. At a low pH, it's in the form of, uh, I think, ammonium and uh, is, has a charge and is be able to be removed. So you know, that's why we split it up. Not everybody's going to need that kind of thing, uh, but you know, if you're having challenges, and specifically people that have really high pHs in their in their water and use chloramines, you probably have no idea how much uh, ammonia gas is actually getting into your water, and you know, you may not know like the results of that depending on how much of that water goes in your tank every day. All right, let's see here. So water filtration, three, four, five stage RODI for SPS, uh, ultra low nutrient. You know what, man, like whatever works. You know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's hard because I don't want anybody to spend more money than they need to, right? And uh, four stage is the default. You know, a sediment filter, a carbon block, a RO membrane, and then the DI, and you're done. Like you'll probably not worry about water for like a third or half of you. Uh, and there's other people that have all kinds of weird stuff in their water. You know, you just don't know. And so, you know, it just becomes an like, ever-increasing, you know, peace of mind. Uh, as a, like, when you try to, you know, something's dying in your tank. You know, coral's dying, a fish dies. You know, the reality is, is, like, you don't know why that happened. You know, and you often look at the things that I just did. But, you know, I added carbon yesterday, and then my fish died. It must have been the carbon. Oh, my God, the carbon's so toxic. The reality is there's, like, almost zero chance that, that carbon was so toxic that it caused, like, immediate mortality in the tank. And if it did, man, you wouldn't be the only one noticing it. The phone would be ringing off the hook. Uh, it would be all over the forums, man. It would be uh, all over. In reality, something has actually been stressing this coral or fish out probably for a long time, and you really just don't even know what it is. And so... For me, first step is trying to rule out the things that it could possibly be so I don't ever even have to think about them. So, for instance, with the RODI system, if I do the best possible install of this thing, and water is never my issue. 
Water will never, ever, ever be in my mind as to why anything in the tank isn't doing well or why I have algae or something, you know. Uh, like, I've just completely moved on from that so I can go think on the things that most likely is. So if I was on a tight budget, that four-stage system beyond that, uh, you know, if I want to know, you can also add, you know, I, I would probably, my personal thing, I, I would do the, the seven stage pro one. I'd like the efficiency of it, and I'd like to know that no matter what, man, this thing is removing everything at that point. But, you know, you can add stuff at any time. You know, I want to turn my four stage into a five stage. I just buy a canister and put it on the front, you know, put a sediment filter in the front of the thing. Now I've got two carbon blocks. So it's not like you're tied into this for the rest of your life. Uh, Ryan, do chloramines show up as TDS? You know, they I have a weak charge, so they should. Uh, so they would show up as, uh, uh, you know, like in our case, we have three and a half parts per million. Now, TDS is just like an estimate. So like, I don't know if it would show up as three and a half. If it was only chloramines in there, which would be impossible to uh, isolate like that. The problem, the scary part, though, that it, like wouldn't show up would be like in our case, we have uh, a... Uh, 0.75 parts per million ammonia in our water, but it's ammonia gas because our pH here is 10. So it, the ammonia gas has no electrical charge. So I'd be dumping almost one part per million nitrate into my water, or uh, nit one part per million ammonia into the water, and the meter would absolutely not read that. One, because it doesn't have electrical charge. Two, because uh, it's below one part per million. So there's some things in there that, like, you just may not want in your water like if you had one part per million copper man you're probably not doing good you know so uh, I don't know what the exact threshold for copper is but you know there's a lot of different things in the water that you know if I got all the way up to one I'm not probably gonna be real happy about it so it, yeah definitely it could measure it but more concerning would be the things that you can't measure all right Okay, uh, this is a good one in uh, relation to filtration. Uh, Ryan has started a new t starting a new tank soon. I have always wanted to do a fuge, but a friend of mine swears by using sulfur denitrators. Uh, what's your opinion on this? Uh, why not? It's cool. You know, I, I don't think they're super popular. Uh, you know, just due to the complexity of it, and like, you know, the more complex it gets, the more fearful that you're going to do something wrong. And the more fearful you're going to do something wrong or likely. I mean, I'm not setting this tank up for a year. I'm trying to keep it alive for 10, you know, maybe longer, you know. Uh, most people upgrade by then. But, you know, like, I need to have pieces of equipment that are never going to fail me uh, catastrophically anyway. And I just don't think there's enough understood about those things. It's not that they don't work because they absolutely do. I gotta just say, I just never have run into a super awesome wall-to-wall -wall SPS tank that uses one. That doesn't mean they don't exist, because I'm sure they do. I just haven't. And so, you know, in the end, it's, you know, am I trying to implement technology, or am I just trying to achieve a goal? And if I'm just trying to achieve the goal, the goal is, you know, really low nitrate and phosphate, I mean, I don't know, a, a $300 light or maybe even cheaper and a bat of Kato achieves it. You know, so I don't have to worry about all kinds of different things associated with that. Like, and I'm not using funky uh, algaes like Calerpa that may go uh, sexual and explode in the tank. So to me, the, 
easiest path to success, the one that has the least likelihood of catastrophic failure at any point, the least likely uh, or the least reliant on technology or understanding that technology, it'd be the best. So I might install a sulfur denitrator on a fish-only system uh, just because the, it'd be I just have less concerns over, you know, the things that could go wrong with that in a system like that because the fish are a lot more hardy in most cases than, you know, really sensitive corals. All right. Okay, Ryan, do you need to run a reactor, be, be it calcium or GFO or carbon, to have success in this hobby? Uh, well, so I guess there's three of them. I, carbon man is five bucks, and so use it in a bag, use it in a, a thirty dollar reactor. But it's going to clean up the water, so it's not yellow. It doesn't smell. It doesn't look ugly. I don't know why anybody wouldn't run carbon. You know, I actually saw uh, a good post in last week's episode specifically using carbon. That uh, you know, we talked about a little bit about whether or not it causes any disease in the tank. And this guy ran a freshwater system or something where they did a necroprosy on some fish and. They found carbon in its uh, blood, or from the and from the type of carbon they were using, it was super dusty, and they let it dry out, and they reused it, and whatever. And eventually, man, it killed some of the fish that they were using in this commercial facility. And so, I mean, I can't tell you that that was you know accurate or true. I can tell you that you know the BRS team uses carbon in every tank. I can tell you that WWC uses carbon in all their tanks, and nobody's fish are sick. But also, I mean, we're rinsing it and we're taking care of it. We're not like you reusing it a billion times or trying to create dust out of it. And we're all using, you know, d almost dust-free carbon with the ROX 0.8, the high-quality, you know, carbon. We're not using the you know, cheapest stuff around. So, like, yeah, I would definitely use that. GFO, to me, is probably one of the over most overused medias uh, out there. And I know that uh, Bob, our finance guy, is going to kill me for saying that because we sell a lot of GFO here. But, like, it's a, it's works really well. It takes the phosphate down to almost nothing, but it does nothing about nitrate. And so it really gives you this illusion that your water is awesome because, you know, the tank's thriving. There is, you know, no algae in this tank. It just looks really awesome, like, until it doesn't, you know. And so what's happening is... Uh, because it looks so awesome, my water changes slack a little bit. I still got zero phosphate, so algae is like totally inhibited from this uh, media. But like, meanwhile, my nitrates are skyrocketing, and you know they may be 300 by now. You know, and then the moment that that you know GFO slips and you don't change it on time, and there is actually phosphate, bam, and out of everywhere, there's algae that's growing all over the place, or like. Maybe your tang dies, and you know the combination of the two is just terrible. So, I really like to think about GFO more as a tool. You know, I'm not going to run it all the time, forever. I can use it as a tool in a newer tank to you know fight off algae and make sure that I don't run into some common issues uh, in a tank. And then also, you know, if I'm trying to manage phosphate later. You know, maybe I don't care if my nitrates eventually get up, uh, you know, over the years. But I also don't want my phosphate through the roof because uh, it may inhibit calcification and coloration. 
Uh, so independently, you know, when I add food, I'm going to add both. Uh, maybe I just don't care as much about the nitrate and the other solutions are helping kind of keep that at bay. Well, I'll use some, or some uh, GFO to, you know, bring it down to the level that I want it at. So in this week's episode, actually, you can talk a lot. We talk a lot about using lanthium chloride or Brightwell's phosphate E, which, you know, precipitates out the phosphate in that case. And, you know, one of the cool things about that approach is, you know, it's precipitating the stuff out. So, you know, I haven't done this myself, but, you know, the WWC team has, you know, talked to me about it at length. And, you know, in reality, I can dose a controlled amount and pull out a controlled amount of phosphate. So with GFO, it just kind of strips it all out. With uh, the lanthium chloride or phosphate E, I, you know, potentially have the ability to say, hey, I got, you know, 0.1 phosphate. I want to bring it down to 0.05, and uh, it takes, you know, 400 milliliters of this stuff to do it each time. I'm obviously making that number up, but you can find out that it actually does that, and, you know, a more controlled method, you know. Hopefully that's the way that it turns out for us as well. Uh, lastly, the calcium reactor was the, you know, the question. And I got to tell you, I've never run a calcium reactor, and I've wanted to so many times. But every time I got, like, down to it, uh, I just started looking at it like, man, this is, like, you know, obviously complex. I got to manage it and maintenance it. If, you know, God forbid there was an issue while I was on vacation, I'd have to explain to whoever's taking care of my tank how a calcium reactor works. I mean, that would just – every time I got to it, I just couldn't imagine doing that, like – you know, if the flow goes up, you know, it's going to raise or lower the pH. If the pH goes up or down, the concentration changes. And, you know, oh, there's so many elements to think. It's the coolest thing, you know, I can think of on an entire system, you know, for me. Because you are, you know, adding calcium and alkalinity ions, and the corals are taking them up. They're binding them together to create a calcium carbonate skeleton, and then you need those things to replace it. So one of the coolest ways to do that is take, you know, old calcium uh, carbonate or coral skeleton, melt it back into those carbonate and calcium ions, and give it back to the coral. Like, I don't know what could possibly be cool with that, especially because, you know, theoretically, you're going to add all kinds of trace elements and stuff back to the tank. And when you look at the WWC method, all of their tanks are on calcium reactors. And I will say they have a team of professionals there, like, they really know what they're doing and pay attention to it. Places are open seven days a week. You know, there's nobody always, you know, going, the whole place doesn't go on vacation at any given moment. So, you know, they don't have the same challenges that you have at home. But I got to tell you, you know, the one thing that's changed that whole thing for me is the, you know, Comore continuous duty dosing pump. I'm not going to bore you with the whole thing today because we'll, you know, talk about it later. But really having a continuous duty dosing pump where I can control the amount of flow through it, if I pin down the pH of this thing, I can more or less use this thing like a, you know, a, a two-part reactor almost. I mean, it's not going to be two-part in there, but if I dose 47 milliliters a minute, you know, through this thing or whatever the flow rate is, like, and the, P, or the calcium alkalinity starts to drop, Ah, turn it up to 60, you know, uh, maybe turn it up to 70, whatever, or vice versa. I take a bunch of corals out and, it, you know, this starts to rise. Ah, well, just turn it down to 35. You know, so if you have a continuous duty dosing pump, and prior to that, you know, the only ones you were going to really get are like medical grade. 
So you'd be spending you know thousands of dollars on getting one. This thing's just a couple hundred bucks now. And so what you're definitely going to see is the BRS 160 is getting changed over to a calcium reactor. You're definitely going to see it on the XXL 750. And more than that, like as soon as this is all over, uh, I can't help but want to know so much more about these things. So we're going to do a bunch of BRS TV investigates. You know, we're going to dissolve this stuff, send it into a lab, find out exactly what kind of trace elements are in there. Maybe we'll find out the additions over time. Maybe we'll find some impurities in there, because I'm sure it is. It's an you know, organic skeleton. It's probably got some phosphate and whatever in it, uh, you know, good and bad, you know. And, you know, we're really going to explore this. I'm going to find out, you know, what the, you know, maximum concentration of any one of these medias are at various pHs. We're really going to explore the best ways to do this, and I think what you're going to see is a lot of people kind of reconsidering using a calcium reactor once it's as easy as just a single knob to operate, uh, and especially if it adds all kinds of trace elements and stuff back to the tank and just kind of eliminates that from the you know equation. You know, again, at the nobody's going to deny WWC's results, and all they're doing is uh, water changes with a good salt mix. And then using a calcium reactor, there's no magic uh, trace element elixir that they're dumping in. You know, they're not sending out ICP tests and playing mad scientists. You know, because a lot of that stuff, you're, you know, potentially in a long enough timeline, more likely to screw up than you are, you know, just taking care of the tank. You know, using your calcium reactor, using a good water change schedule. And almost certainly, you're probably not perfect. You know, you're probably over or under on some things, but you know, like that hasn't prevented success in the past. So you know, I think that's where we're going to go. Uh, question about skimmers and the air-water uh, ratio. To keep my skimmer uh, overflowing, I have the air tube restricted a little. Would it be more efficient to raise the skimmer and? fully open the air. So if you restrict the air going into your skimmer, you're probably going to take the air down, but increase the amount of flow that goes through there because it, you know, essentially the pump doesn't have to suck as much air in there. So there's going to be more water going through. You know, that may or may not matter. If you are going to raise it up, now the pump is going to have to fight the head pressure of filling that thing up full. And so you're, in that case, you're going to reduce both flow and the flow, by reducing the flow, you're going to reduce the amount of air that goes into the skimmer. And for those of you that didn't watch or you know, didn't get to that part, like I absolutely uh, think that people should consider reducing the amount of air that goes into their skimmers if they're not having success. If, you're, if your skimmer is working great, man, leave it alone. Don't touch it anymore. But if it is, uh, you know, bubbling and there's, you know, foam top to bottom in this thing and like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how much air is in here and it's all tiny little bubbles. It should be working great. And the top of it is just uh, bubbling like a boiling pot of water but not producing anything. It's my personal opinion that you probably have too high of a, a velocity of air going through this thing to create a stable foam head. And at minimum, uh, as you uh, walk through your frustration with this, tune the air down to almost nothing. And then every day, man, just add some more in there. And within a week or two, I bet you you're going to see a pretty substantial difference between, you know, a little bit of air and a lot. And you might find that a little bit of air actually creates a stable foam head uh, better than tons. And, you know, the 
theory here has always been more bubbles, more surface area, more availability, but really that I don't think holds true in the essence that it's only one component of the whole thing and blowing a bubble that is able to maintain uh, its structure uh, long enough that it can go out the top of a tank or as a skimmer rather is more complex than just saying more air is better and it, I just don't think that's true. All right. So, uh, what else do we got here? What does the majority here uh, use to remove nitrates? So, I don't know. I think Felix is probably talking to everybody out there, but I'll just say what a majority of the people here use. Uh, and if you're talking about reducing, you know, uh, that means they're already there, right? And so the easiest way to reduce actually is stop putting so much food in. And, you know, it's not that if it's rising, stop putting so much food in. If it is found stability, like, you know, at WWC where it's 25 and it's always 25, well, then you can just keep doing what you're doing, you know, depending on wherever it is that you, you know, want to be. But, like, if you now need to remove it, you know, water changes is probably one of the best methods. And the reason I say water changes is, you know, you can do a handful of them, especially if you think about any contaminant, really, and you know it's going to come out. If I start, like, trying to use carbon dosing and dumping vodka or NO3, PO4X or bio pellets and, like, all this stuff in my tank, trying to reduce stuff, you know, it's just, like, going to cause, like, all kinds of chains of reactions in the tank. And now, like, all the, you know, especially with carbon dosing, there's all kinds of bacteria and stuff that are going to build her up around this available amount of nitrate that I no longer want in the tank. And so it's going to build up, try to create this thing, and then it's going to crash and fall down and try to, you know, build around the real level I want of, you know, five or whatever it may be. It's just way better to, you know, do a handful of water changes, get it to five, and then implement a solution that will keep it there. So removing nitrates, you know, a lot of people have success using, you know, the NO3 PO4X or any one of those carbon dosing solutions. A lot of people have success with the Zeovit system, you know, which also is kind of like carbon dosing. The media also pulls them out. Uh, you know, but like a lot of people also have success well, well, with those carbon dosing things. I will say that I don't know a lot of people that like stick with that super long term. And I know there are a lot of people that do. It's just kind of, to me, less stable. And there's one of the things that, like, never has it ever been explained to me, you know, in a manner which, you know, meets my satisfaction, is I know for sure what happens if I don't dose enough organic carbon to the tank. Well, I got unwanted nitrate and phosphate. But what if I dose too much, meaning, like, you know, let's say uh, 20 milliliters a day was the right amount, but for whatever reason, man, uh, you know, Billy Pipes told me I needed 60 milliliters a day, right? And so I did that, and, I, and you know, I wouldn't really know because calcium or my uh, uh, nitrate and phosphate is zero. But I'm dosing two to three times as much as I really needed, and all that organics in, is in the water. And nobody really knows the effect of that or the buildup of it over time. And I was just making fun of Billy Pipes there. hope he's not on, but uh, he's a good member of our community. Uh, and so, like, really, you know, I think that one concerns me. It's specifically also in relation to bio pellets. I mean, it, it works. There's no question. You know, uh, we've been doing it for years. 
I just don't know a whole lot of people that have super duper awesome, you know, knock it out of the park, SBS, wall to wall tanks that uh, rely on bio pellets. And maybe that's just by chance. I just haven't seen it a lot. And for me, the bio pellets are the reason they use them is because it's, you know, presumably like a controlled dose or, uh, you know, like, you know, it's just, you know, they're eating it off of there as needed because it's not dissolved. But it also seems to me kind of like uncontrolled because it's all in there. And I just, you know, anything could happen at any given time. It needs to tumble. And if it's not tumbling, then like, then what happens? So, you know, nitrate, using bio pellets for nitrate and phosphate just isn't my favorite. If I was going to do uh, a uh, carbon dose, you know, outside of the Zeovit system that we've done here and other people really like here, I'd probably do the commercial one with the NO3PO4X just because it's, you know, pretty inexpensive. I mean, it says right in the MVS that it's essentially vodka and vinegar, like, mixed together. But one of the benefits of doing that is there's, like, a big, large community out there. There's instructions on the bottle. You know, there's, like, people to ask on the based on the concentration of this stuff and how much to use. You're just more likely to hone in on the right amount from the beginning. Uh, that doesn't mean if you don't use your research, man, like a bottle of vodka is way cheaper or a bottle of vinegar or whatnot. But, uh, you know, that would be my choice. You know, for me, though, you know, the easiest way, again, is the refugium. Like, turn the light on. Throw some in the trash. You know, so uh, I – it's really hard for me to not want to use one of these things on so many tanks now because it's just so easy. And that's like, you know, the thing that's happened with nitrate and phosphate over the last couple of years, or I mean, I should say decade, is it was like almost unthinkable, you know, 10 years ago that it'd be so easy for reefers to hit like zero phosphate and nitrate in the tank. And so many people were fighting algae and all kinds of other outbreaks that, you know, the message was like, you know, reduce your nitrate, reduce your phosphate, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, like in, in every instance. And like, you know, to the point now that you see somebody say they have a cyano problem, it's like 50 people pile on and say, you know, use, uh, uh, get your nitrates and phosphates down. And like, you know, I, mean, I just don't even think that's really accurate. Uh, first off, uh, there's a variety of things that could cause cyano, but like, it's just so built in our DNA to get to zero, 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 zero. And now we're having the opposite effect of zero. Well, I actually need a source of nitrogen and phosphorus for my corals to build their DNA in turn to build the pro or amino acids, build their proteins. Like if there's no source of uh, phosphorus or uh, nitrate in the tank or nitrogen, I should say, man, the corals are going to be unhealthy. So now, you know, the flip side of that is it's so easy for us to hit zero, like a whole new set of problems have kind of arise. So a uh, refugium can definitely do that. You know, the thing about this nice about the refugium, though, is I can adjust the, you know, light and the amount of time that the light's on to, you know, or even intensity to, you know, adjust the amount that it consumes. And, you know, with a carbon dose, I can, you know, adjust that, I, I suppose. It's just like, you know, there's so many unknowns that are happening behind the scenes there. So... I guess those would be my favorite methods and some of the kinds of ups and downs of all of them. You know, uh, one of the things I just get back to with that cyano question is, like, really, I'd like to see that conversation evolve because it's happening to so many new reefers. And really what happens is the community kind of, like, 
makes people feel like they're a bad reefers because they got cyano in their new tank, you know. And like for most people, it's almost inevitable that they have an ugly stage in their tank, and they're like, it's not necessarily because you're not taking care of it or you're not doing the water changes or whatnot. You know, it's just kind of part of like what kind of wins that initial battle for a short period of time. And I got to tell you, I know that the WWC team uses uh, things like ChemiClean. Like, no problem, man. It's a solution to a problem. You know, and the community is really, te- you know, kind of train people to think that don't use something like ChemiClean because it's a, you know, uh, it's not a direct cause. You know, you're, you know, band-aiding a, you know, issue here. And really, what you might be doing is, uh, you know, wiping out all the cyano and giving the tank another shot to rebalance now that it's more stable and hopefully not let that cyano win next time. So, like, it might not be because you're this terrible reefer. Uh, The the fact you have cyano, I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, nitrate and phosphate isn't a part of the equation. It just means that, like, we should be a little nicer to people that probably went through the same issues you and I did. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So DJ's Reef, off the uh, hey Ryan, off the subject. But how's the family? Uh, awesome, man. I love my wife and my two new kids. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I have a two and a half year old uh, Flynn, and I have a brand new baby that's two and a half uh, months old uh, with Calliope. So uh, she lets me spend all kinds of time with you guys. So thank you very much to her. Uh, thank you for asking, DJ. Uh, Okay, wait, 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 fragile reefer. Auto water change, with all the automated change systems out there, how much is too much water to change, cost and labor aside? You know, I think that's gonna be kind of measuring your goal. Like, where do I want my nitrate and phosphate levels to be? I mean, that's probably the best pulse on the whole thing. You know, for me, I started at 3%, kind of thinking that's, you know, 3% daily, thinking that's the high side of what I should do. And then I just say, you know, if, you know, Cost is a factor here. Scale it back until you find the nitrate level starting to rise. You know, then you know right, right is the amount that you need to change every day. And that's kind of the beauty of those auto water change systems like the DOS is I can tell it to do uh, three gallons a day or a gallon a day or whatever I want it to do and adjust with it to hit, you know, my desired goal and, you know, let it do it over time. And I don't really have to test all that often to do that. And... It just makes something that was so hard, you know, really, and I shouldn't say so hard, just, you know, so hard to do consistently, you know. And, again, like, that's one of the things we're going to hit out with the WWC thing is there's a team of people that are performing 10 to 15% water changes there every week. Unless you've got a team of people at your house willing to do water changes, uh, that may not happen all the time, you know. And, you know, I joke about this a lot, but in the summer there's a barbecue or something, man, I may very well skip it. What if there's two barbecues and a ball game? And I missed it now for a month. So, uh, you know, how much, uh, you know, as much as you need. Uh, I think a lot of people start at one. I start at three. You know, find where you actually need for your tank. All right. Take a couple more here, and then we'll call it a day. Uh, So what are the benefits of having two chambers for a calcium reactor? You know, uh, the common thought here is uh, after that, you know, solution leaves the calcium reactor, it's still got some excess CO2 in the water, and that is going to scrub off that excess CO2 so you don't add the CO2 to the tank. Uh, And, you know, just for reference point, the acidity of the water has a really direct correlation to, 
you know, or causation, I guess, to how fast a coral can, you know, build its skeletal structure. So, you know, when we use a calcium reactor, we are lowering the pH of the tank. You know, a lot of people will try to, you know, change that. Actually, this leads into a really uh, cool topic. And, you know, we've been using, you know, CO2 media in the past, and one of the, you know, you put that on your skimmer, and then the gas exchange that's happening inside the skimmer now is with, like, near zero CO2 water, and it just kind of strips it out or gasses it off. And now the pH in your tank, you know, can rise in almost every case. I'm sure there's some instances where that just doesn't work because of, you know, either your tank flow or CO2 levels in your house. But in most cases, CO2 in your house is the reason why the pH went down. Uh, and so if we strip that out, the problem is, is we are, you know, going through that media pretty rapidly. And so, you know, at BRS we made these big jumbo reactors. They cost probably 100, 200 bucks or something, you know, for something pretty big. It may last a month. You know, I don't want to be changing out media every three days or a week or something. So we don't, you know, the small ones, you know, it depends on how much air your skimmer sucks through. One of the new cool things I saw on, uh, you know, uh, Reef to Reef recently is somebody actually took the export of the, or the input of the CO2 media chamber and plugged it into the cap of their skimmer. Meaning the air that the skimmer is using is now recirculating low pH or low CO2 air. So it's sucking air out of the top of the skimmer, then sending it through the CO2 media and then pumping it into the skimmer uh, uh, pump, uh, the air pump which means that it's never really stripping all that much air from the ambient air. It's just taking low CO2 air and cycling it through. Now, I haven't actually done that, but you can be absolutely sure that I am going to do a BRS TV Investigates on that because uh, we weren't able to release it because there were some issues at the very end that just, you know, mucked it all up. But I can tell you for sure that when we were running the CO2 tests here at 7.8 and 8.3, you know, one of these things was consuming calcium and alkalinity twice as fast, and it was not because there was precipitation happening all over the place. It is because the coral line is growing faster. You know, all of the little crustaceans are growing faster. The corals are visually bigger. And it's because at higher pHs, they can just lay down skeleton faster. Now, for a lot of people, I don't want to buy that media all the time, but, you know, in reality, if you're spending a 1000 bucks on corals and I can grow my corals twice as fast, uh, that media might be the cheapest thing you put on the whole tank in terms of results. And even better, if now it lasts six months or something because I'm just recycling air through it. So I'm pretty excited to see how that all pans out. There's actually a, a thread on that. You know, hopefully uh, I, I'll ask somebody to post that in the uh, comments uh, of this once it goes live because it was pretty cool. All right. Uh, I'll ask just two more here and then we'll roll. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I don't see any here. What's the current nitrate and phosphate level in the tank behind me? That's a good question because it's uh, zero and zero. I just cannot get a level of nitrate and phosphate in here consistently. We've done, you know, all kinds of stuff. One of the things is just going to start dumping food in, you know, uh, to try to get a, a readable level out of the tank. And, you know, hopefully that, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that'll work. Certainly isn't preventing results, you know, because, you know, the, the thing is that we don't want nitrate and phosphate to fight the algae, but we do want it for the corals. 
but with the amount of food they were putting in here and uh, it's breaking down, I'm certain, and, you know, we're using reef chili, we're using cyclopods, we're using all kinds of different things in there, that the corals are capturing some of this stuff as uh, prey or even broken down in different forms before it would get down to, to nitrate and phosphate. So they're getting their nutrition. I will tell you that for a while there we were actually dosing the, I think it's called neonitro from Brightwell. It's just nitrate. And, like, it absolutely seemed to be producing results. Like, things looked better when there was actually some readable level of nitrate. And that's why we're going to try to get back to it. I personally just didn't like the whole concept of dosing nitrate. I really want to focus on protein input, just like the WC team does. Like, when I met them and talked to them about it, it was like, hallelujah, finally somebody understands me. That it isn't just about this end game of nitrate and phosphate. It's about the whole scale of coral nutrition. and That's kind of why I really hate the word nutrients is because it just makes it seem like it's all about just uh, nitrate and phosphate. And it's just really so much more than that. Uh, all right, one more question. Let me pull one from here. Uh, you know what I really want to hit on is, uh, again, is Mike uh, B here had, you know, overall, uh, I'm really torn by this uh, WWC hybrid series. And its overall effect is supposed to be for, don't get me wrong, uh, I absolutely love the information. It's super great. But at the 248 mark, you say one of the cornerstones of what WWC does is regular, consistent protein input on the hour, every hour. That's really only possible if you have an army of workers that do this for you, which something isn't something hobbyists has. Sure, you have an auto-feeder, but auto-feeding dry food every hour might not have quite the same effect as people have over fleshy stuff like mysis. Ultimately, all the water changes, parameter checking, feeding, etc., needed to do it just like the WWC method would be. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a full-time job just to take care of the tank. I can't agree more, and uh, they can't, they'll agree right along with me that this isn't necessarily applicable, you know, their method or applicable to a home environment. And that's the first thing I saw. You know, they don't really like uh, uh, aquarium controllers, exactly, you know, and most of the tanks because it's just kind of another piece of equipment that may fail. They don't like uh, heaters because it may be an a piece of equipment that may fail. But I live in Minnesota, man. I need a heater. I also, you know, uh, go on vacations, man, sometimes weeks at a time. I need a controller to tell me that something's wrong. I need to be able to call somebody and say, hey, save my, like, many thousand dollar investment from dying. I don't want to come home to a stink fest, you know. So, like, it's just different. And that's why we're doing the hybrid method is I really want to focus as much as humanly possible on doing what they do because, you know, these guys are really producing some awesome results. But then take you know, all the knowledge that BRS has, not just me, but the whole team here, and we've talked to probably hundreds of thousands of reefers at this point, bring it all home, and how do we do this in a manner that you know, will be very similar results, but like, isn't going to take over my life, and I you know, like, don't have a team of people at home that I'm willing to spend you know, constant, constant hours on. It's an aquarium in my house, man. It's a hobby, and you know, for some people, I'm willing to put in three hours a day into my hobby. You know, for other people, like, I'm willing to put in, you know, 15 minutes a day and three hours in the weekend. You know, it's just like, it's different, and neither one of those people is wrong. So how do we build it in a manner that, you know, achieves those goals? 
You know, and, and just before we go, then I got one last thing is, uh, you know, the last, you know, six months, you know, not like six months, but in the last year, we spent a lot of time talking about all those ULMs. And, you know, we talked about using the Triton method on, on this tank and, you know, how exciting a lot of all that stuff was. And, you know, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, did what I wanted to do and other parts of it, it didn't. And I'll start with this tank right here. You know, this one, we put the Triton method on it, and, you know, I was really cautious about it in the beginning, but, like, the more and more and more I thought about it, I thought, well, if the water's, you know, like, as good as it gets, I have testing that tells me it is, the tank looks awesome, then why am I changing water out? I just don't understand. You know, I, 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 I you know, drank the Kool-Aid, I guess you could say. And in the end, they're right. You know, you can produce really awesome results there you know core 7 replaced uh, all the elements I could test it and it produced results the one thing at the end of it though I would say is they're 100% right it absolutely works but in the end that uh, you have to send in these test kits you know periodically to identify the quality of your water and then when it says do a water change do it because if you don't man it's telling you now it's telling you that the water is bad you know, do something about it. And if you don't, don't be surprised when stuff dies. It just will. And uh, so, you know, really what you end up doing here is a little bit of, you know, number chasing. You know, I am not doing the water changes. I don't have to haul the buckets of water around. But, like, I do need to send these test kits in, and I need to listen to them when they do it. And it's going to be up to the individual, you know, really which one is easier. And... I mean, once we installed the water change system on the 160 with uh, uh, the Apex, the dose, it doesn't do auto water changes on it currently. You know, what it does is push button water changes. So I get the report, I go push the button, it does my water change for me. And, you know, and the thing will usually say, you know, do one 10% change or do three of them. Well, man, I really don't want to do three of them. The whole reason I got this thing is so I didn't have to do that, you know. But, like, if it's push button, like, I go push it once, and then I come up to it a few days later, push it again, a few days later, push it again. Boom, I'm done. Man, like, I did what they told me, and I'm going to have results because of it. So, you know, there's a blend between all of this. But, you know, in the end, I think, you know, for some people at least, just doing the water changes to begin with and avoiding all that kind of stuff, you know, really maybe ultimately easier for some people. So... Uh, and then, we, you know, we took what we learned from that and we applied it to the, you know, one or the ULMs in my office. And I'll just tell you right now, like, one of them was just stupid. You know, so, you know, we did the softy tank and we did the LPS tank. And, I mean, the softy tank is phenomenal. I, I think I'll probably post a, a video of it today so you can go see it. You know, if you want to go to my Instagram, it's just BRS Ryan or Ryan BRS, you know, one or the other. You can go to my Instagram and, and, you know, see what it looks like. But this tank is phenomenal. And what it gets done to it is literally nothing, you know. So, you know, the only thing we're doing in this tank is doing some auto water changes and putting some food in the top. If you want a tank that requires, like, uh, zero effort, man, here it is. You can, you know, mix up a vat of water, you know, once a month or whatever size vat you have and put an auto feeder on the top of it 
And what you'll have is a really awesome display in your home, you know, that everybody will say is super cool. In fact, you know, we all know that most people think that, you know, corals that move are the coolest. So, you know, most uh, people that visit our homes anyway. So that tank may actually be the most impressive display with the littlest work possible. This is ultra-low maintenance ULM all the way. Then I'll say the LPS one is probably going to be right behind that. And one of the things we're exploring with it is the All Reef, which is the calcium formate uh, with mixed with some stuff from, uh, from the guys over at Tropic Marin, which is like a one part, you know, calcium and alkalinity additive. And like in that case, I think we're going to have the same results, like almost no effort, super awesome looking tank, built a little bit more for reefers who don't care about swaying corals and stuff as much. Uh, and it's going to be a really awesome uh, LPS tank. And the SPS tank, we just took down and, you know, replaced it with that 170. And, you know, I know that we could have set it up as an uh, uh, ULM. And I know we could have, you know, achieved the results we were looking for it if we wanted. But, you know, after talking to a lot of people and what we were going to do with it and just my own internal viewpoints, I just felt like it was the wrong message to tell somebody that, you can do a SPS tank with as little maintenance as possible. It's just like the wrong mentality for this type of tank. And doesn't mean that it can't be done. It just means that like taking responsibility for, you know, the information that we're sharing and getting it to the right people at the right time. I just didn't think that that message was solid. Like you should know that this actually is a harder tank to take care of. You should put some more effort into it and like going into it, be ready that that's like a real thing. And so, you know, that was really it. So I'm gonna wrap up today. Uh, again, you know, if you want more questions answered, uh, you know, join us every week and you have to hit the subscribe button with the notification bell to be notified when we go live. So if you're watching this afterward, if you want real questions answered, cause I only get to a handful of them here, you know, you can answer, ask them in the comment section of uh, this video when it posts live or posts afterward. But you know, even more fun, I think, is uh, over on that hashtag AskBRSTV on Facebook. That community's growing super fast, uh, and you know, what's cool about it is, you know, it's not just a bunch of random people. It's the community that watches this stuff is the most engaged in what they do, and you know are mostly pretty friendly. Uh, there's responsibility that's attached to your face when you put it on Facebook. In most cases, you know, you want to make sure that you're being respectful to other people. So it's just a really cool environment to get your questions answered. So, you know, check out hashtag AskBRSTV on Facebook. And uh, I guess uh, I will see you next week. Also, hey, one other thing. If you get a chance uh, in the comments uh, here or, you know, on the video, I'd really love to know, you know, whether or not you like seeing these videos after and answering questions after you've seen that video on Friday. So, you know, doing this video like we're doing it now on Monday, or do you like kind of hearing that pre-roll of what's going to happen in that video and like, you know, getting your mindset ready about like, what is he going to talk about Friday and really kind of thinking about how it's going to come together. I mean, I guess you could say both, uh, but, you know, my wife's going to kill me from all the time that you take from me. But, you know, I just kind of want to know, we're just exploring this whole thing. Which one of these things is the most valuable to you? So thank you very much for watching, uh, and happy reefing.